as we continue going through church history, we're, we're talking about, I'd be tempting to call this World War II era, but I'm trying really, really hard not to just focus on the wars, because I love military history, but to realize that there's a lot going on beyond just the wars. Even, even having nothing to do with World War II, or in a much <laughs> World War II, there's a lot of conflicts going on, like we talked about in these last couple of weeks. We ended last week by talking about how the book Crux Ansatha was published. Remember that? Anyway, so Crux Ansatha, uh, which is, its subtitle is An Indictment of the Roman Catholic Church. So it, it puts that on the cover. You know this is, this is going to try to be just a little bit intense. If you'll remember, we talked about the Pope, Pope uh, Pius XII, decided that best thing he could do for the Catholic Church is to remain totally neutral, right? Not going to say anything negative about Hitler. Not going to say anything negative about the Nazis. I'm not going to do anything to try to undermine anything that they're doing. Why, why did he do that? Depends on whether you like him or not. Well, try to say it value neutral. Whether you like him or not, why did he why did he try to remain neutral? What did he think remaining neutral would do for the Catholic Church? What would you think, even if you don't remember the notes? Hitler wouldn't necessarily be going after you exclusively. Yeah, Hitler's going after everybody. So I kind of like to not paint a target on us. What else? What benefits are there other than that? It allows you to remain everywhere. Yeah, the, his argument was the church needed to remain universal. We're not just the church against Hitler. We're the church universal. We need to be able to be Catholic in Germany. We need to be able to be Catholic in England. We need to be able to be Catholic everywhere. Um, and uh, the, 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 his, one of his predecessors remained neutral during World War One, and it actually worked out pretty well. You know, we could do all sorts of humanitarian aid and things. That protected the church, and, and specifically Rome. No matter what else happened, the Nazis tended to dislike, we're not going to blow up Rome. We're not going to do anything to Rome. Rome is sacrosanct. So that was good. It worked. What it did do was make everybody else frustrated with the Catholics. Pretty much everybody, everybody other than Germany started getting very frustrated with the Catholic Church because they wouldn't do anything. They wouldn't even say anything. They were like, could you at least say that that like invading other people's countries and taking all their stuff and, and torturing their people is bad. And he's like, well, all conflict really is bad. Like, no, 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 no. Conflict to stop people from torturing people. Could you at least say that's good? No, no. That's just, war is bad. Oh. In particular, H.G. Wells, who is known particularly in your mind for the time machine, okay, he thought of himself as, first and foremost, a social activist. That's what most of the stuff he wrote about was. He wrote articles about social change and the importance of getting rid of old dogmas and things. We need to have uh, free love where we're not bound by classic traditional uh, morality. We need to get more science into things. And he was, in some ways, in some ways, uh, he was... Uh, uh, who's the guy with the bow tie um, that, 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 that debated uh, creation with Bill Nye. Bill Nye. Some ways he was Bill Nye in that you go, so you're writing about science. You go, well, sort of. Yeah, what I'm really kind of trying to do is to say science will solve all of our problems 
and we really need to abandon all of this biblically stuff kind of stuff. So, so um, even when you think about the books that he wrote, yes, he's writing about science fiction, but with a particular edge toward social change. Like uh, his book, Things to Come, is talking about the dangers of a European war and getting involved in that and will be taken back to the Stone Age, but then scientists will come and save the day and make everything okay again. When you think about the time machine, it's, you know, science will come and fix everything that everybody does wrong. So, he said, this obviously shows the rank cowardice of the Catholic Church. This is, it, your one stinking job is to stand up for morality, and in the most immoral moment of history, you refuse to do it. So, clearly, you're cowards. Technically, though, he was utterly disgusted with a lot of people at this particular moment in history. He was running around being disgusted. Like in 1941, he sent George Orwell an abusive, profanity-heavy letter to complain because, first of all, Orwell didn't agree that the war was going to end quickly. Well said, well, clearly, Britain, you know, it's going to be great. Britain will win, and it will win in a, in a couple of months. And Orwell said, actually, Hitler seems to understand how to work people. And I'm not sure that Britain is really ready psychologically for war. I'm, I'm kind of thinking it'll last for a while. And Wells is like, well, you're blankety-blanky, unpatriotic blank. That's what you are. That's, you can't just do it. He just started lambasting him for not trusting England. If you just put your confidence in England, this will be over in like a month or two. Also, Orwell didn't agree that if you just get more technology, everything will get more moral. Huh? Clearly, Wells is correct, right? With the advent of the internet, our country has gotten infinitely more moral. Right? I mean, Orwell's like, no, seriously, the more technology you get, the more you will be what you are. The more anything you get, the, 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 the more um, power you get, the more technology you get, the more leisure time you get, you will be more and more the person that you are in your core. Are you somebody who wants to do good? Oh, then the technology will enable you to do more good. Yay. Are you somebody who wants to control others? The more political authority you get, the more you're going to try to control others. Yada, yada. So he's like, no, no, I, I'm pretty sure that just getting more science is not going to create a social utopia. In fact, my guess is we'll just use it to spy on one another all the more. And Wells is like, oh, you're a blankety-blank. So he called him naughty names. Anyway, so in response to the crisis at hand, Wells writes the book Crux Ansata, lambasting the Pope. Ah, I just hate him. The book's title refers to cross with a handle. That's what crux ansata means, which is a funky word that basically means ankh. And he never explained why he called it that. So, why did he call it that? I'll give you the best guess that I have. Does anybody want to take a guess as to, as to why Wells called his attack on the Catholic Church the ankh? Okay, Fine. I, and I would, I would agree with that in terms of my suggestions to what it means. So yeah, I think that man is kind of trying to control the cross. Anything else? Some people said it's a it's a symbol of life, and so that might have something to do with it. 
Anybody familiar with the tarot deck at all? There's a card called the Emperor card. And he sits on the world throne holding the orb in one hand and the Ankh in the other hand like an earthly king. And this is symbolic of the quest for personal power and control. You're trying to control everything as you sit on your magic throne holding your Ankh as if you were emperor of the whole world. And since Wells had a tendency to use tarot deck symbology in some of his writings and stuff, and since he didn't say no when a lot of people commented on this one, I'm going for this one. Is that he's basically saying that the Pope is sitting there holding his crux on Sata, like he's trying to control everything. Anyway, give you an idea of the tone of this. The first chapter is entitled, Why Don't We Just Bomb Rome? Which I think is it. Why do we not bomb Rome? And immediately begins with a diatribe against Pius. He says, not only is Rome the source and center of fascism, because remember that's Mussolini kind of came up with modern fascism, and Hitler was kind of aping that. But he says, but it has been the seat of a pope who, as we shall show, has been an open ally of the Nazi fascist Shinto axis. You've got to bring Japan in there. Uh, since his enthronement. He has never raised his voice against that axis and has never denounced the abominable aggressions, murder, and cruelties they've inflicted upon mankind. And the pleas he is now making for peace and forgiveness are manifestly designed to assist the escape of these criminals so that they may launch a fresh assault upon all that is decent in humanity. Why do we not bomb Rome? Why do we allow these open and declared antagonists of democratic freedom to entertain their Shinto allies and organize a pseudo-Catholic destruction of democratic freedom. That's H.G. Wells for you. So, you, you, I know, when you think of H.G. Wells, you think, ah, sci-fi. I can't think of an H.G. Wells science fiction book that isn't actually about some sort of social issue. He thought of himself as a social activist. But to be honest, that's pretty much just articulating what most people were feeling at this time. There are a lot of people everywhere saying, I kind of think the Catholic Church is being cowardly. I kind of think that if Hitler keeps taking Poland and keeps taking Austria and keeps taking Czechoslovakia and saying, you guys don't want a world war, do you? That if the Pope comes along and says, oh, let's not point guns at one another. Technically, doesn't that actually help Hitler? I mean, if Hitler's the one that keeps taking everything and you're telling us not to fight. Now, I'm not saying that we should run around and point guns at people. I'm just saying, do you understand his rationale saying, if Hitler's the one who's antagonizing everybody and taking everything, and you stand up and you go, well, let's not fight about all this. I'm reminded of a Monty Python line where somebody's slaughtering some, all these different people at a wedding and the father goes, oh, let's not argue about... Who killed whom? Let's all just get along. He's like, well, you know, maybe that's self-serving. Maybe that's not a good idea. But, just because Pius isn't doing anything, that doesn't mean that every leader in Rome is just sitting around doing nothing. Not everybody thought that being neutral in this was a good idea. For instance, my favorite Irish priest, Hugh O'Flaherty. Yeah, he has had almost every picture I could find of this guy. He had some kind of cheesy grin on his face. 
Hugh O'Flaherty is an Irish priest. Anybody hear of Hugh O'Flaherty? Okay. Irish priest who was a member of the Pope's administrative staff. And he's like, no, I'm taking a side. Which is interesting because Ireland itself was supportive of Hitler, for the most part. Against England. Because England is a bunch of jackbooted thugs. And if it takes a bunch of jackbooted thugs to stop England, we're fine with that. And so they, they kind of like the idea of, of a demagogue that comes along saying, hey, you poor people, are you tired of getting stepped on by your capitalist regime that pushes from, from a central authority and steps on you? And all the poor people in Germany say, yeah, we are. And all the poor people in Italy say, yeah, we are. And a lot of the poor people in England said, yeah, we are. And all the poor people in Ireland said, absolutely. So anyway, interestingly, he's actually being a bad Irishman by saying, you know what? Uh, I think Hitler's wrong. So, when Mussolini was removed from power in 1943 by, by the Italian king, thousands of Allied POWs are suddenly released. Mussolini's no longer in power. Italy is no longer a fascist government. Because you knew that halfway through the war, right? Italy's a good guy now. Okay, so halfway through the war, King Vittorio Emmanuel says, That's it. That's it. We're done with fascism. You're done. Mussolini's on the run. All you POWs are free. Yay! And then Italy is immediately invaded by the Germans. So they were good guys for maybe a minute and a half. Yeah, 67 seconds. <coughs> you know, just for, for, for a brief period of time, I was like, yay! Now we can go on! Nut bunnies. So now here's the problem. You now have a bunch of allied POWs who are no longer in POW camps and still smack dab in the middle of German territory. What do you do? I mean, granted, they, they prefer that to being in a POW camp, but it's not like they're free. All of a sudden they're like, I'm from Idaho, and I'm in the middle of Italy? Is that the one that looks like a boot? I don't know where I am. I don't speak Italian. I don't know what to do. So what do you do? By the way, Europe looking a little scary right now, right? Because it's all this black thing. So Monsignor Flaherty said, all right, tell you what, Vatican City's neutral. It's neutral ground. Any Jews, any POWs, if you need to find a place to stay, come to Vatican City. I'll find you a place to stay here. To which Pius said, you know, you really can't do that. Neutral means neutral, not sanctuary. It means we can't take sides. I'm not going to tell you not to do it. I'm just going to say you're endangering everybody. Stop and think before you do this. And O'Flaherty said, actually, that's exactly what I'm doing. It's stopping and thinking about what I'm doing. To give you an idea of O'Flaherty's flair for the ironic, the very first safe house outside of Vatican City that he found to hide people in was next door to the SS Colonel Herbert Kepler's German security headquarters in Rome. Actually, it's like butted up against the back of it. So it's like, I figure the one place that they're not going to look for somebody is literally right sticking next door to SS headquarters. I like this guy. This guy's got an attitude that I respect greatly. O'Flaherty is a very physically active man. He was a boxer. He, uh, he went to school on a golf scholarship, very physically active. And so he's like, no, I'm totally taking part in this. I'm not just going to sit behind a desk and do this. So he frequently wore disguises to slip out of Vatican City to go help refugees and coordinate all the stuff with his operatives, which earned him the nickname the Scarlet Pimpernel of the Vatican. 
If anybody are familiar with the, with the, the story of the Scarlet Pimpernel, the, the guy that the, the British guy that that wore disguises to sneak into France and help save people from the from the guillotine, save aristocrats. Really interesting story. Kind of florid book, but really awesome movies. If you ever want to chase them down, plus he's you know wearing scarlet stuff. So I mean, it works anyway. Coupler issues a kill on sight order for the priest. He's like, if we ever see him outside, well, first off, he says, I, let's go, let's go arrest him. And Hitler's like, no, 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 no. Got a very tenuous thing going with the Pope. You can't go into Vatican City and arrest him unless the Pope turns him over to you. And he goes, Coupler goes and talks to the Pope, and the Pope says, well, no, neutral means neutral. You know, this swings both ways. So Coupler actually had a white line painted around the edge of Vatican City. And he's like, everything on the inside of this is neutral. You take one step over the line, and you're outside Vatican City, and we will kill you. If you step over the line, he had snipers, actually, along the, uh, and, and like hanging out the window so you could see them. Snipers along the edge of it, pointing at the white line. He had guards patrolling the white line. It's like, you take one step, we'll kill you. And if we find you outside of the white line, we find you out in, in Rome, we won't kill you. We'll turn you over to the police, the fascist police force that we put in place, and they already have plans to torture you to death really, really nastily. So, let me, let me make you very clear about the fact this ends now, priest. So, O'Flaherty liked to take daily walks along the white line, reading his Bible and smiling and talking to the guards. <laughs> he would wave at the snipers. <laughs> I love this guy! Cowboy even snuck. They, they put him in disguises, and he snuck some of his own guards into Vatican City. So when O'Flaherty was doing a mass, they would go in and start talking to him and kind of angle him to the side and then push him over the white line by accident. Because once he's over the white line, then you can shoot him. But the Swiss Guard were alerted to this, and you don't mess with the Swiss Guard. right? And so they escorted the disguised Nazi guards back across the line, and into the hands of Yugoslavian partisans who happened to be standing there in the alleyway that the Swiss Guard <laughs> dropped the guards off in. As you might imagine, Yugoslavian partisans didn't much care for them. Not. Beat them senseless. Beat the snot out of the... And the Swiss Guard's like, I don't know, that's just where O'Flaherty told us to drop them off. We had no idea that they would get beat up there. I mean, that's not our territory. It's, it's over the white line. So that's your guys' territory to police, right? SS never did catch O'Flaherty, even though he kept crossing the line. He kept going out in disguise. He disguised himself as a woman. He disguised himself as a... That was fun. Anyway, kept going over the line, kept wearing various disguises, and they never caught him. In the end, he was responsible for saving more than 6,500 POWs through his network. He was given awards by almost every Allied power after the war. Kepler, ironically enough, when the Allies liberated Rome... He was arrested, even though he went to Vatican City and asked for sanctuary. And they turned him away. They're like, nope. The Pope said, nope, nope, nope. He was convicted and sent to military prison pretty much for the rest of his life. In fact, for the rest of his life, he had a grand total of one visitor. Monsignor <laughs> <laughs> Flaherty, who visited him every month. Every month he sat and conversed with him. They talk about 
They talk about philosophy. They talk about sports. They talk about anything. And he would always pray to him, pray with him, and he would always minister to his needs. Say, how can I help you? What can I do for you? One visitor. So in 1959, after 15 years of that, of these monthly, monthly visits, Kepler actually became a Christian, and O'Flaherty got to baptize him. So what can we learn from that? Besides that the, uh, the Irish are the most amazing people ever. <laughs> There's a bug in my drink. Okay. Even the darkest people is redeemable? What else? Anyone can love people that are nice to them. You know, that's actually... You're like a Bible person about that, right? <laughs> Anybody can love people that are easy to love. Now, some people die, though, right? Some people stand up for, for, for righteousness and die as a process, in the process, right? So God didn't protect them, right? Brought them home. The, the trick is... To, if there's a trick. The trick is to sit there and say, well, anybody ever hear G. Gordon Liddy? Anybody remember G. Gordon Okay, anyway. Um, long story short, he was famous for a couple different things, but one of the more um, colorful things he was famous for was to show his commitment to uh, his government post and to, and to doing what he thought was right. He, he once rolled up his sleeve and held a lighter under his arm until the, the skin singed and he didn't flinch at all. And somebody's just like, how do you, did that hurt? And he said, yeah. Like, how do you do that then? By not minding the pain. The tricky bit to standing up under persecution, the tricky bit to doing the right thing, is not saying, because I know that God will get me out of this, but to do what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did and say, but even if he doesn't, I would rather choose the pain than fall away. I would rather do the right thing, even if it's hard, than do the wrong thing and not serve God. If a nut like G. Gordon Liddy can do it, I think we could probably do this for our Lord. There were members of the Nazi party, though, that actually tried to help during World War II. If you remember when we talked about the rape of Nanking a while back, in, in China, when Japan, yeah. There was a local Nazi leader named Johann Rabe, or John Rabe, who's an honest good Nazi. I mean, he was a happy Nazi. He assured the German constituents in 1938, and still, above all, pro-German, and I believe not only in the correctness of our political system, but as the, an organizer of the party, I'm behind the system 100%. I'm a happy Nazi. And yet... He used that position in China and the political expediencies that come with that to actually create a safe zone in the city when the Japanese invaded, where people could flee to and he'd say, no, no, you can't harm these people because they're in the safe zone. They're being protected by us Nazis, which should make people kind of wince, but it's because we tend to think in terms of very, very broad, very, very simplistic categories. Even Nazis... Nazi credentials weren't good enough ultimately to keep the safe zone up and going for very long. Couldn't help them for very long before the, the, the Japanese finally overran everything. 
but it did provide cover for roughly 250,000 Chinese who were able to get out of the city because they went to the safe zone and then were able to escape through the safe zone. In fact, he even dug um, shelters for 650 Chinese people in his own backyard. In his own backyard, he's like, okay, we're, uh, you can't get to the safe zone. Here, come here. They won't attack my yard. I'm literally going to cover you with a gigantic Nazi flag to protect you because the Japanese won't bomb my yard if they see a Nazi flag because they don't want to, the, the, the Japanese don't want to torque off their ally right now. So, let me wrap you in the Nazi flag to protect you from those racists, right? Because the world is a little bit more colorful and complex than we like to think of it. A Japanese major, Oka, was dispatched to protect Raba because he wouldn't leave. And the Japanese are like, it would be bad <laughs> if the leader of the Nazi party got hurt as we were invading Nanking. So, Major Oka was, was, was told, stay by his side, don't leave his side. And uh, Oka repeatedly asked Raba, why the devil did you stay? Why, why do you want to involve yourself in our military affairs? What does all this matter to you? You haven't lost anything here. And Raba replied, I've been living here in China for over 30 years. My children and grandchildren were born here. I'm happy and successful here. I've always been treated well by the Chinese people, even during the war. If I'd spent 30 years in Japan and were treated just as well by the Japanese people, you can be assured that in a time of emergency, such as the situation China now faces, I wouldn't leave the side of the people in Japan. And Oko just was kind of Actually, apparently he, he bowed, muttering something about samurai honor, and left the room. Raba was called by many Chinese the living Buddha of Nanking for humanitarianism. So ironically, you, you talk to people in Nanking about the Nazis, and they go, oh, I love those guys. It's a weird world. And then you got people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer that we promised we would talk about. Lutheran pastor, theology prof, who was one of the first to take a theological and humanitarian stance against Hitler and the Third Reich, right? How many people have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Okay, good. Well, then I'll just skip along. No, anyway. Basically, the German equivalent of what we were trying to do is evangelicals in America. Remember when we talked about evangelicalism, at least the beginning of evangelicalism last week? That's what Bonhoeffer was essentially trying to do. He's like, I'm going to be extremely biblically conservative. Let's go back to scripture. Let's make sure we nail ourselves to that. But I'm going to be an extremely impressive scholar and, and college professor. So I'm going to link biblical conservatism with strong uh, education and study. And I'm still going to be reaching across denominational lines to build a consensus of confessing churches across Germany because we want to make a difference. So I'm a social activist who is nailing myself to biblical conservatism and to strong scholarship. And all the evangelicals in the United States, if we'd cared at all, would have sat there and said, yay, that's our kind of guy. He had tried to come up with, what do I mean by confession churches, by the way? Confessing churches. But the specific kind of Lutheran church. What makes it a confessing church? Well, they do. They have a confession that you stand behind, but it's also talking about you have to make a decision. You have to, you have to follow Christ. You, you have to, there's, there's a sense of conversion, but also specifically 
you're going to stand for a biblical confession and not just go along with what the Nazi party is saying. Do you remember when we talked about positive Christianity, the Nazi version of Christianity, a couple of weeks ago? He's like, no, no, that's not biblical. That's so not biblical. And so he tried to come up with it with some of the other pastors and write a confession in 1933 that, that was different than this, but it fizzled. Because the more he wrote about it and the, and the more he tried to press for it, the more people said, the more the Nazis pressured people and said, nah, we don't like what you're saying, and the more pastors said, eh, I don't think I'm going to sign that. And when 20,000 pastors voted in 1934 to remove the Old Testament from the Bible, 20,000 Lutheran pastors, primarily Lutheran, I mean, I'm sure there was a smattering of other things, but for the most part, when you're in Germany in 1934, you're talking about Lutheran pastors. 20,000 Lutheran pastors voted to remove the Old Testament from the Bible because it was so Jewish. He was one of the only, like, one-third of the pastors in Germany to join this new Pastors Emergency League. It's like, we, something's gone horribly wrong. There's about 10,000 of us that are, that, are, that are standing up for doing stuff that are right, and 20,000 of us that are standing against that. So they crafted what they called the Barman Declaration, written in Barman, Germany, uh, in 1934, declaring that the Church of God is, quote, solely Christ's property, unquote, and not the Fuhrer's. Because if you remember, positive Christianity said, Fuhrer is the head of the church. And he said, no, no, Christ is the head of the church, and is the only head of the church. Which got everybody into a lot of trouble, and most of them fell away. By the end, just a tiny little fraction of pastors that weren't dead and weren't Nazis. Most pastors have fallen victim. So, after he lost the post at the University of Berlin, because he's just not playing the game, he began secretly teaching underground seminaries throughout Germany. He would go from city to city, meeting with pastors, and teaching them what he would teach in the seminary, helping them to grow, helping them grow closer to the Lord, helping them have Bible-centered lessons, etc., teaching conservative Christianity in pub basements and stuff. And then when that when when the Nazis would figure out that there was a, a seminary going on, he'd move to another town and do a seminary there, and then move to another town and do a seminary there. It was during this time that he wrote the book The Cost of Discipleship, which is a book that we always give as a graduation gift to all of our high school students here in our church. That calls Christians to a deeper, more costly relationship to God. He wrote against this growing acceptance of what he called a cheap grace. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. That's a cheap grace. If you just say God wants to forgive you and make you happy and he has a wonderful plan for your life. That's a cheap grace. How would you see cheap grace in American churches today? Do you see any problems with that? is that people, you know, say, people in the street or people in the pew will have kind of a consumerist mindset. But if that's what people are wanting, and churches are wanting people, churches can develop a consumerist mindset, right? Because you've got to give the people what they want. So if you want to grow, you need to make sure that you provide 
forgiveness without requiring repentance. Don't we see that? I mean, not, maybe not actively. Maybe we say, oh, you don't have to repent. But when was the last time you heard uh, an evangelical or evangelistic preacher saying, God wants to forgive you. Confess your sins to him and he will forgive you. But you have to repent, right? I mean, there has to be actual contrition. You can't just confess your sins to God and say, I did something wrong, please forgive me, and expect that everything's going to be cool. You have to say, I realize this is wrong, and I don't want to do this anymore. If you just say, please forgive me, and I plan to keep going and doing the same things, why should God forgive you? There's whole Bible passages about that, right? When's the last time you heard anybody saying that? Especially when somebody's like, man, I just feel like I've got so much guilt. God wants to forgive you. Just lay that at his feet and stop doing that. Do you ever hear Jesus say that, by the way? Do you ever hear Jesus say, stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you? Do we ever say, boy, we'd love to welcome you into the church? By the way, we don't actually intend to ever like tell you that we think you might be doing anything wrong or holding you accountable to anything because we'd hate to offend you. You might leave. Yeah, we develop a consumerist mindset, which is exactly what he's talking about. In 1939, he moved to America to teach at Union Theological Seminary in New York. He's like, I'm getting out of Germany. Germany's way too ugly. I'm gone. But then he wrote a letter to Reinhold Niebuhr, who's another German theologian at the time. And he said, I've come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I don't share in the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their own nation in order that Christian civilization may survive, or willing the victory of their nation, and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I, I can't make that choice from security. I can't sit here in New York and will the destruction of my own nation to save humanity. I can't do that. So he went back to Germany, and he actually joined the Abwehr, the German Intelligence Gathering Agency. He became part of the secret police in Germany that was hunting people down, finding Jews, finding subversives, and throwing them in prison and torturing them and stuff. He became part of the Abwehr. Because he specifically wanted to resist the Reich from within it. So he gave all sorts of wrong information. He found out information about people, said, okay, by the way, the Abwehr is on to you. You better move now. I know. They're all, How do you know? Because I'm the one that found out the information. Go now. So he was trying to, very, very, very subversive stuff. He's like, the only way I can do this is topple it from within being the worst kind of Nazi. 1943, he was arrested alongside several other co-conspirators within the Abwehr, which became really intense when the next year it became clear that he was at least involved in the plot to assassinate Hitler. There was a German leadership plot to kill Hitler, and it's a little unclear as to exactly how intensely involved Bonhoeffer was in that. So he was executed in 1945, one month before the fall of the Third Reich. A lot of people, though. And so you sit there and go, wow, what are the odds? I'm like, yeah, a ton of people. 
Hitler, right before, right before everything toppled, was like, that's right, kill everybody. To a fellow prisoner, he said, this is the end for me. Or this is the end. But for me, the beginning of life. So, what can we learn from this example? Yes. But what can we personally learn? I agree. What can we personally learn? It may very well. So this is interesting because it's a point counterpoint in some ways to Monsignor O'Flaherty, where you say, man, this guy got through unscathed. It's like Christ was protecting every step he made. But Bonhoeffer is like, yeah, this, this guy got pounded every step he made. I mean, this got pounded on and yet chose to walk back into it and then died and gave his life to us. Yes, Christy. Both of them felt comfortable and uncomfortable with being comfortable. Both of them were in safe places, New York, Vatican City, and said, I can't sit here while other people are dying. I cannot do nothing when I know other people are suffering. I can't. Just, I can't do that and call myself a Christian. How many of us tend to say, I know where comfortable places are and I tend to like to stay there? Versus how many of us say, I'm comfortable here, but I need to step out of my comfort zone, literally, step out of my comfort zone to go help people who are in desperate need of the help that I can give them. 1945, VE Day. What's VE Day stand for? Victory in Europe. Victory in Europe. Victory over Europe Day. By the spring of 45, things are falling apart for the Axis. The Allied troops are pushing in from the West, British, French, the Free French, the American mostly, and Soviet troops are moving in from the east. And so everything's starting to get scrunched. Everything's starting to crumble. In April, Mussolini is killed by Italian partisans. I mean, there's all these... Hitler keeps trying to figure out how to get him out of Italy. And, yeah, it just ends badly for him. His body is desecrated in the streets of Milan every way that the Italians can think of doing it. I mean, just horrific things that they did to his corpse. So it was actually to prevent further abuse by the crowds that the partisans hung his body alongside fellow fascists and let people see his corpse hanging there for weeks because that was the least offensive thing that they could think of doing with his corpse. Hitler starts commanding the German people to fight to the last man, drafts kids, small children, to come in and fight. He's like, we've got rifles, what we don't have is men. So hand rifles to Conrad, say, congratulations, I'm proud of you, soldier of the Reich. Back yourself out. Go die for me. On April 30th, not wanting to be killed nastily and desecrated by people, like Mussolini just did, Hitler commits suicide and has his corpse burnt. So if you ever wonder, why did he do that? Mussolini, make it through. You know, that's all what happened. That's not what I want to happen. So Admiral Karl Dönitz was made the new leader of Germany. And he said, we will continue the fight. We will fight to the last man. Every child will fight. Never give up, which he was actually lying, because all he was really trying to do was to make sure that nobody surrendered to the Soviets, because he said, no, 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 the Soviets are torturing and nastily any German soldiers they find. The, so the, the Soviets are going, yeah, no, to the Geneva Convention. Don't surrender to the Soviets. Hang on till the Allies get here, and we're giving the whole kit and caboodle to them. Whatever we do, we need to surrender first to those guys. 
not to these guys. So he's, he's telling everybody, fight, 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 looking over the eyes, going, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. May 8th, the Nazi high command officially surrenders to the Allies, and then the next day to the Soviets. Like, whew. Now we'll just get tried for war crimes and possibly hanged. We'll get off easy. I mean, seriously, this is what they're thinking. If we're really lucky, the Allies will get us and they'll try us for war crimes. And we'll hang. That's what we're looking for. May 8th, by the way, is also the new president, Harry Truman's birthday. 61st birthday. And he's just like, best birthday I ever had. And I dedicate it all to FDR. This is all his work, not mine. He died just a little bit, just a, just a couple months ago. And he's like, nope, that's all him. A little bit later, VJ Day stands for, help me out here, why is it victory over Europe and then victory over Japan? Why isn't it victory over Germany and victory over Japan? Or victory in Europe and victory in Asia? Okay, this is, this is fun, because at the exact same time, two people sitting right next to each other say, well, it's because there were multiple European powers, and it was just Japan. It's not like we were fighting against China, fighting against Malaysia. We were fighting against Japan and Asia, and multiple powers in Europe. So one person said that at the same time that somebody else went, because Pearl Harbor, we hate the Japanese, and those fascists over there in Europe. Do you hate the Germans? Sure. But I think of them as those Nazis as opposed to versus those Japanese. So is it that it is more accurate to say we are fighting various European powers and Japan, or is it because there's a racist component to this, where we say we're fighting people over in Europe and those dirty jobs? It's like, which is it? To which the answer often is, eh, little column A, little column B, right? But technically, let's give at least history a little bit of a bone here, that it is more technically accurate. We weren't just fighting Germany. We were fighting Germany and Italy and other fascist powers. Anyway, Germany is now defeated. America says, okay, we can turn our entire military strength against Japan. In July, Truman, Stalin, and the new British Prime Minister, Attlee, meet at Potsdam to discuss the disposition of the post-war world. What happened to Churchill? I mean, wasn't Churchill like like the most powerful, most popular guy ever? Why, why did he get defeated? Well, you're still in the war. You're still in World War II. He loses the election to Attlee. Why? Anybody know? Because the world is a fickle mistress. They're winning. I mean, Germany is dying. Germany's going to lose. By the time the election came along, it was pretty clear that Germany was going to lose. And that Japan is losing. So they're like, this whole dogmatic motivation of we will fight, we will fight, they don't need that as much anymore. I mean, you don't need motivational speeches when you're winning, right? Plus, plus, he kept talking about how much he didn't like Stalin. He kept saying, you realize Stalin is a problem. There's going to be this iron curtain falling on Eastern Europe if we're not paying attention to this. You understand this, right? I mean, yeah, we need to win the war, but Stalin is at least as bad as, as, as Hitler. And the British people are like, can we please stop with the villains? We'd like to stop wars. And the best thing that we can do to stop having all these wars is to just stop having wars. 
Hitler's a villain, and we beat Hitler, therefore we're done with the villains. The movie's over. And Churchill's like, you understand the movie's never over. It's not a movie. You understand there are other bad people out there, and people want, I don't want there to be. And so there are, right? Hitler's often remembered as a guy that killed 10 million Germans, 6 million of them were Jews, right? Stalin killed 20 million Russians, 8 million of which are Jews. Why is Hitler the bad guy and Stalin is that wacky communist? Why? Hitler was first. Hitler got the airplane. Plus, who needs a secondary villain when you get the primary villain? You know, actually, the secondary villain is worse. Pardon me? Yeah. Exactly, because Stalin never invaded Poland. <laughs> oh, wait, yeah, that's another thing that they did. They carved up everything in Europe at Potsdam, right? They carved up Germany into four occupied zones. The American zone, the British zone, which actually eventually kind of merged together to become the Bizone. They referred to it as the country of Bizonia. You know, just having fun with it. Anyway, the French zone and the Soviet zone. Everybody's got their own zones of influence. And the Soviet Union was also allowed to oversee Eastern Europe. Because Eastern Europe had gotten so pounded on by the Germans, they're like, well, we'll oversee this part. You guys oversee the reconstruction of Western Europe, we'll oversee the reconstruction of Eastern Europe. Especially Poland. We really want to oversee Poland. And so they basically took over everything. But in a nice way. Not in a, we want you to speak German way. In a nice, we want you to speak Russian way. It's different. It's totally different. Anyway, and a declaration was prepared demanding Japan, Japan's unconditional surrender. Like, you have to stop everything. Now, the Japanese emperor, Hirohito, had already basically said, I'm fine with that. We're losing. We're going to lose. So there's an argument that he was actually even making secret plans with the Allies saying, I'll surrender, and I'll surrender unconditionally, with the condition that I get to be emperor still. I'll surrender everything. You can take all the Japanese. You can, have, you can do anything you want to with them, as long as I still get to be emperor. I'll do that. I'll totally do that. But Prime Minister Suzuki said, okay, we, that, we can't do that, and we need to save face. What do I mean by save face? Yeah, because remember, Japan is, is one of these shame cultures where, where we would sit there and say we're all about trying to have accurate information things. Japan's like, well, it's really more about how do people feel about their personal shame or your shame. So we can't be completely what the West would call honest. We have to make sure that we don't come across as weak in the process. And so to prevent the very possibility that a coup might happen, from the military, who were absolutists. The military, the Japanese military is like, yo, fight to the last man. The Japanese military tortured Allied POWs horribly because they couldn't conceive of how a soldier could surrender. So, I mean, Allies would drop their arms and say, we, we surrender. Commanders would say, I'm going to lose all my command if I don't surrender. So, yes, take my 100 men because your 5,000 guys are going to kill them all. So put us in a POW camp and we'll be liberated at the end of the war. The Japanese are like, how can you surrender? Kind of commander surrenders. So they regularly torture guys. Um, uh, they sent guys to Kyoto for 
military experiments and, and vivisect them in, in public at local universities show, see, this is how they're different from, from the Japanese. You look at their internal organs, as the guys are still alive, they do all kinds of stuff. There's credible evidence that it, uh, among the various islands, multiple different POW camps, the Japanese engaged in cannibalism. They ate POWs because they're like, they're not human. They can't be human. They surrender. Now, you're Suzuki. Do you want to surrender? Do you think that your military is going to appreciate that? So you go, um, I'm genuinely afraid of what our military will do if we just say, yes, we'll surrender. So we announced that the official Japanese response to the terms was mokusatsu, which is a Japanese word that means, eh, Basically that. So we're just going to kill it with kindness and silence. It's a highly nuanced word that can either mean this isn't even worth dignifying with a response. I refuse to comment on it. Or we're genuinely stopping and thinking about this. Give us a moment before we actually agree to this. It can work either way, depending on... Think of it as the Japanese version of the American response. Now, don't worry about calling us. We'll call you. I promise. No, I'll call you. Now, does that mean... I promise I will call you. I'm genuinely taking this seriously. Or does that mean, <laughs> please don't bug me. You're never going to hear from us again. Depends on the context, right? What does it mean? I don't know. But to the Japanese people, to the military, to the media, and all the translators who were translating the response to foreign media, everybody thought that that means that the, the Japanese quietly refused. Nope. We are, we're just not even regarding this as digni worth dignifying with a response. No. Japanese government, the military, had promised for a long time, like Churchill, that they would fight every square inch of ground. For, down to the last man, they had completely thumbed their nose at the Geneva Convention. We will torture everybody we come in contact with. Japanese school children are being taught how to make bombs. Uh, disabled people in hospitals are being taught how to make booby traps so that they can put them on all the beaches. They're stockpiling ordnance in Hiroshima. Japan's like, we're... We're nestling in. You're going to have to invade Japan, and you're going to have to fight and die for every square inch of land. So Truman said, this is going to go on. It's going to go on for months, possibly years, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse with every step. So what do I do? How do I end this? In August, the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. Approximately 150,000 people were killed instantly. This is before an aftershock of the same place in Hiroshima. This is all the buildings and all the streets and all the things going on, and this is the absolutely nothing that's left. What's the amount of time between those? Probably a day or two. Okay. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Japanese government assessed the damage the day after and decided it wasn't bad enough to justify surrendering. And they said, no, we're going to keep fighting. At most, the, the Americans have maybe one, maybe two more of these things. We can handle this. We can absorb this. It's okay. Let's keep fighting. I say this because there are people who are like, why would we drop a second bomb? It's like, because Japan said, what? No. We're going to keep going. Forget self became the slogan of the Japanese government. Forget self. Stand for your country. Maybe you'll all die, but that's okay because you're just one faceless cog. The, Japan, the, the Japanese empire has to continue. Three days later, the second atomic bomb, again, 
notice the difference. Second atomic bomb was dropped on the seaport shipyard city of Nagasaki, killing roughly 80,000 more people. By the way, we killed quite a few more in, in uh, fire bombings of like Tokyo and other places, but just not all at once like that. So when people go, oh, the sheer tonnage of lives, you go, I don't know, we killed a lot more people in fire bombs on Japan, you know, on the, jet, the main islands of Japan. But this is like 150,000 people die all at once. 80,000 people die all at once, and then lingering other people die nastily after that. Ironically, several Allied POWs survived the nuclear blast of Nagasaki. They're in downtown Nagasaki, in prison, with thick walls, and thus survived. Because they were underground in bunkers and thick walls and stuff, and so they dug them out later, and they're like, we got a couple dozen Allied POWs. I think an American, a bunch of uh, Australians and things. Just go, wacky world. Apparently, if you're down at the bottom of the pit and you have a metal, never mind. Um, the USSR then declares war on Japan because Stalin was really good at declaring war right as the country was being beaten. So, um, he'd get a piece of the pie. Cliff and Caleb have been fighting for five years. And just before, which one of you wants to lose? Caleb. Just before Caleb loses, and Cliff gets war reparations from Caleb, I mean, like 30 seconds before Caleb goes, fine, fine, unconditional surrender, and you can have all my stuff, Paul goes, yeah, kicks Caleb in the shins and says, me too. <laughs> oh, he surrenders all of us, I guess. I'll take half. Okay, a third. That, no, seriously, that was Stalin's whole plan. He did that all over the place. So the USSR declares war on Japan. And Japan goes, oh, you really, really don't want to lose to the Soviet Union. Really bad to lose to the Soviet Union. We'd rather lose to America. Much better to lose to America than to the Soviet Union. So the government finally relented and accepted the Allies' terms of surrender. Like, okay, we'll surrender to you guys. Not to them. Not to them. You guys. So, discuss the dropping of the atomic bombs for just a moment. Let's discuss it philosophically. Because, I mean, we're 70 years out, right? We can discuss this without massive, strong emotions. People don't still have strong feelings about this. Philosopher Carl Friedrich von Weistocker uh, wrote that it's dreadful that, of the Americans to have done it. I think it's madness on their part to drop an atomic bomb. Einstein said, the unleashed power of the atom has changed everything, save our modes of thinking. And we thus drift toward unparalleled catastrophe. Former President Herbert Hoover said, the use of the atomic bomb with its indiscriminate killing of women and children revolts my soul. You can understand why this is a horrific thing. Destroyed the environment, destroyed countless people. Even the people that didn't die survived unpleasantly, right? Scientist Werner Heisenberg of the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle responded by saying, you know, you could equally well say that's the quickest way of ending the war. Truman said he had nightmares about having to make that decision for the rest of his role, for the rest of his life, and yet also wrote, "Having found the bomb, we've used it. We have used it against those who attacked us without warning at Pearl Harbor, against those who had starved and beaten and executed American prisoners of war, against those who have abandoned all pretense of obeying international laws of warfare. We've used it in order to shorten the agony of war, in order to save the lives of thousands and thousands of young Americans." categorically fought against dropping a third bomb. 
He argued against um, a senator in 1945 who said, we ought to just keep doing this. I mean, bomb back to the Stone Age. He said, you know, for myself, I certainly regret the necessity of wiping out whole populations because of the pig-headedness of their leaders of a nation. And for your information, I'm not going to do it unless it's absolutely necessary. So, no. I refuse to do it. We've made our point. We dropped one, and they were so stupid that we had to drop a second one. I'm not dropping a third unless I absolutely have to. But then again, 20 years later, he wrote a response to an article in the Chicago Sun-Times where he said, you know, I knew what I was doing when I stopped the war that would have killed half a million youngsters on both sides if those bombs hadn't been dropped. I have no regrets, and under the same circumstances, I would do it again. So help me out here. Which side is right? And there has to be one, right? Because you can't say, well, it was both right to drop the bombs and not right to drop the bombs. It was good to start a nuclear war and not good to start a nuclear war. And there are probably pros and cons, but it was either the right thing to do or it was not the right thing to do. Obviously, there are some gradations, there are some good things and bad things that happen, but if you had to decide, we are either going to drop the bombs or not drop the bombs, because those are your only two options, which side is right? Actually, that, that is a, that is a, yes, I, it would be a stinky decision. Having said that, now that philosophical question is on the next person. Eric has now resigned, and now it's on Sarah. Drop the bomb or not drop the bomb. Sarah resigns, and the, the decision is now on David. Drop the bombs or not drop the bombs. Those are your only two options, which is right. They really didn't know how much damage they were going to do. Nope, you're right. They, they thought that after Hiroshima they did. So you could argue dropping on Nagasaki was maybe the most philosophical of all. What else? It's true, not making a decision is itself making the decision not to drop a bomb. So there is no technical passing of the buck, because passing the buck just means you're deciding not to drop the bombs. Okay? But you can argue, well, I mean, Japan refused to, 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 to surrender. Clearly it was a good thing, right? Everybody agree that dropping the nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and instigating the nuclear warfare age was a good thing. How is it a trick? Okay, let me. Uh, yeah, let me. I And to be grossly and appropriately manipulative, I will say, even God has designed a system where sometimes we absolutely have to do things that are against what God wants us to do. Correct? Because they're necessary. They may be immoral, but they're necessary. Okay, now everybody's shaking their heads. When I phrase it that way, you're all like, no, there's never a time where doing the immoral thing is the necessary thing. Okay, so now back to this. Let me ask, I'll clarify, I'll clarify, because you're right, it's a tricky question. Which side is right from a moral perspective in terms of the total loss of human life? Okay, then let's say we know that like, 230,000 people are going to die, and we know, because we have an infallible crystal ball, that if we don't do it, 500,000 people would die if we didn't. 
So now, which is the moral thing? Taking 250,000 lives or allowing 500,000 lives to die? Which is the moral one? But you have to either drop the bombs or not drop the bombs, don't you? I guess it depends on your responsibility. Sure. As a president, your, your goal is to protect your people. Uh, whereas, you know, if it, was, if it was me saying that, I'm not, that's not necessarily my responsibility. Good point. So think about it from a presidential standpoint. Clearly it's the right thing to do because that's the one that protected the most American lives. Okay, 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 I'll do it a different way. Practical perspective. Forget morality. Out the window. Practical perspective. Just in terms of creating a sense of peace in the world. He ended the war. And because that the United States had nuclear weapons, that created peace, right? From a practical perspective. I mean, just forget morality for just a moment. Practically speaking, clearly he should or clearly he should not have dropped the bombs. You're right. It is a manipulative question. I will grant you. Except on some levels, not even remotely manipulative. Because isn't that the whole... There's only two reasons to drop a bomb on somebody. Because you like killing people, or because you want to end a, a conflict, right? Schwarzkopf said the only reason we have soldiers, the only reason we go to war, is to end war. We, we create peace by having soldiers. That's why we make all the guns. It's so that nobody will fight. How very double-speaking... But it makes a certain amount of sense. It's like, the only reason I would pull a gun on Eric is to do harm to Eric because I feel like it, or to prevent harm from being happened. Uh, like, Eric, I, you've got a knife. I just drew a gun. Put your knife down. Let's not hurt each other. Right? Those are the only two reasons that make some sense. So on some level, dropping bombs is exactly, we, we do that in any war because we want to create peace. We want to end the war. Okay, then let me back it up one more time. From a biblical standpoint, who is right? Do you drop the bombs, or do you not drop the bombs? You're in war. Japan has said, we will never surrender. We will fight to the last man, and we have disregarded the Geneva Convention. But if you drop the bombs, you will instigate an entire Cold War. You will destroy the environment. Thousands of school children will die horribly. Drop the bombs or not drop the bombs, from a biblical perspective. Okay, thank you very much. Everybody want should we take a vote as to whether it's biblical to drop the bombs under that circumstance or biblical not to drop the bombs? Would you feel comfortable if I asked you for hand raising under those circumstances? Okay, two of you are nodding, everybody else looks uncomfortable. It's, there's no it's not there's no biblical like you're being when you say two hundred and eighty thousand people dying versus five hundred thousand people dying, both in, in either choice, thousands of people are dying. To like, if you're being you're, you're being utilitarian, if you're saying that just sheer numbers is a, is a difference. Both sides are morally wrong. Both sides are wrong from a human life perspective. Both sides are wrong practically. Both sides are wrong biblically. You just you're left with 
what that what little information you like you don't have a crystal ball to see in the future. So I think I would have said got the bonds too because you don't know and most twists and wrongs it's kind of up to what makes sense to you and what you maybe if you're praying and the Lord Now there's an interesting response to this given by the guy that actually led the Manhattan Project. What's the Manhattan Project? Make the bombs. The, the military commander of the Manhattan Project, I'm not talking about Oppenheimer or any of this, was a guy named Leslie Groves that was the military engineer overseeing the Manhattan Project. And Leslie Groves said, people who talk about outlawing the atomic bomb are mistaken. What needs to be outlawed is war. So the question, should you drop the bomb and end the war? Should you not drop the bomb and see the war continue? And those are your only two choices? You, go, you haven't taken the question back far enough. The atomic bomb is simply the ultimate kind of weapon. It did well, precisely what you were wanting war to do. Kind of like when, the other day when we were talking about drones, and everybody was like, ah, oh, drone's bad! It's like, really? Because it just kills well without people on your side dying? There's a part of us that is uncomfortable with certain levels of war. We say, ooh, mustard gas, bad. Oh, no, don't use biological warfare because that can come back and bite you. No, no. There's a part of us, even the most secular people, that sits here and says, we got to make sure that we do war in a way that makes war a lot more palatable. Because if we do war that way, war becomes really ugly. There's a whole Star Trek episode about, you know what, war is an ugly thing. And that's actually probably not bad, because it prevents us from going to war. And if you make war pretty, if you say, well, we'll do war, but not this. We'll do war, but not that. Anybody know how, when did, anybody know when the Korean War began? Korean. Well, that's a, it's, it's, it's a tricky question. It's where they declared war. Well, never. Never declared war. Um, was it when the North invaded the South? Was it what? Arguably, I would say when the North and South Korea split in 1948. When did the Korean War end? It hasn't. It's still going on. There's still an armed DMZ. It was never considered a war. It's a police action. Yeah. So we sit there and you go, Korea has been, as far as they're concerned, at war since 1948. Right. They call it a war. Yeah, we call it a conflict. The Koreans call it a war. And so you sit there and you go, this is, um, this is pretty intense stuff. Can we say that if we just get nasty options, we, we, it'll be better because we can end the war faster. It'll be better because we'll kill people, but not as many people. No, it's worse because we killed a lot of people very efficiently. Is it, at some point, if you're really going to go to a biblical perspective, if you're saying, Jesus, we're in the middle of a war, should we end it hugely or drag it on indefinitely? Paul, we're at war with flesh and blood. What's the best way that we do that most effectively? Biblically. What do you think they say? Why are we fighting them in the first place? Why did you take... I don't even want you taking them to court. If I say you took them to court, I say you lost already. What are you doing? So we say, oh, is the nuclear bomb a good thing or a bad thing? It's asking the wrong question. It's doing war well. I go back to what we learned in the Civil War. What did Sherman say? When they said, you're creating a hell in, 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 in the South. Or is hell. Don't like it, don't do a war. 
Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that the questions that we find almost unanswerable, you actually answer fairly simply. How about we don't kill people? Unless you yourself are leading us in the battle, how about we don't turn around killing people? Lord, I pray. Help us to have a heart that reaches out to our enemies and visits them in prison, even though they have kill orders out for us. Help us to have a heart that says, I want to leave my comfort zone and minister to my enemies. Help us, Lord, to have a heart that says, whatever you want us to do, that's what we should do. Help us to honor you in all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Is there any consideration to not <coughs>